divided where I should be united, united where I should be divided. Who am I? Right? Sounds like a riddle. Uh, But such was the state of the Corinthian Christians. Division and indifference was disgracing them. Divided over teachers and preachers, ministers and ministries, and yet altogether indifferent, even somewhat endearing toward willful, wanton, unrepentant sin within their congregation. And rather than dealing with the sin or disciplining the unrepentant person, they were implementing the uh, politically correct perspective of, of love and acceptance. And they were proud of the position that they had adopted on the matter. And Paul writes to inform them that not only is this disgracing their testimony, but in reality it's putting a blight upon all of Christianity. And not only were they entertaining sin, uh, they were being inconsiderate of the impact of sin and how it affects the body of Christ. And so, guys, it's so easy to deceive ourselves into believing that our sin is no one else's business because it has nothing to do with them. But truth be told, no one sins unto himself. No one sins unto herself. Our sin always impacts and influences those around us. And God has called us, has he not, to lead holy lives. And so what then are we to do when a member of the body of Christ is engaged in unrepentant, unremorseful sin? Well, let's take our attention and turn it to the first verse of the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians where Paul, writing, says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Ladies and gentlemen, we get the impression here, and rightfully so, that Paul is beside himself. We might even say flabbergasted to hear what's happening in the church. He says it's actually reported. Now, when we read the word actually, I don't want you to think like, you know, well, somebody, you know, genuinely had the audacity to say something like this. No, it's not like, well, they're actually saying that. No, more it's accurately understood as it's factually reported, not actually like, is this really true? No, it's factually reported. It's not something that's suspected. It's not something that's running through the rumor mill. It's common knowledge, okay? And not only within the walls of the church, but it's a buzz around town as well. He's saying this is a publicly known fact of something that's happening right there in your church. And what is that fact? He says that there is sexual immorality among them. Now, this word that's been translated sexual immorality is only one word in the Greek. It's the word pornea, right, from which we get our word pornography or uh, pornographic. It's a very broad word. It refers to any and all types of sexual activity or impurity outside of the marriage between one man and one woman. And though any moral failure within the body of Christ is certainly grievous, this particular immoral activity was so depraved 
that even the ungodly saw it as something, frankly, uh, repulsive, horrific. It's one of those things, such a huge statement. When he says it's actually reported, this is a buzz. Not only is it known in the church, but people in the community are kind of like in, in, in shock and awe about what's happening here. It's such a huge statement because Corinth was famous for immoral activity. You know, you remember, this is the city that had 1,000 temple prostitutes that would descend upon it every night, and they would comb the streets looking for immoral activity in the name of worshiping their pagan goddess. But generally speaking, guys, even the unbeliever has some moral fiber, right? A line which they won't cross, but this quote-unquote Corinthian Christian stepped right over it and the Corinthian congregation wouldn't do anything about it. Paul says, a man has his father's wife. It's like, are you kidding me? And and we note the word has. In other words, that means that it wasn't a one-time isolated kind of an event as, as bad as that would be but that it's an ongoing sexual relationship that everyone's aware of. A man engaging immorally with his stepmom, okay? His father's wife. Now, the fact that there's no mention of adultery, that leads us to believe that the father probably had died, okay? And the fact that the woman herself isn't even addressed leads us to believe that she probably was not a believer, But evidently he, the man being referred to, was. Okay, so these are how we come to these conclusions. Now, the man who Paul is speaking of here already had, if you just follow the flow kind of carefully, he already had two stops set in front of him. But only one was necessary, right? I mean, for one, as I already mentioned, even the worldly, ungodly culture around him saw this as something offensive and forbidden. Listen, if as a believer, you're engaging in something, you're taking part of something that even ungodly people see as wrong or weird or just kind of like, this just seems like this ain't right, well, guess what? It's probably not right, okay? It's probably wrong. And so the, this is the first check that he should have received, that even the ungodly were like, whoa, dude, that's, that seems, that's, that's off, man. You should, that's, that's messed up, you know? But listen, even if it's acceptable culturally, or it's something that you can take part in legally, that doesn't necessarily indicate that it's right scripturally. You understand that? How many of you realize that uh, what culture or society deems as right and wrong isn't what constitutes right and wrong? It's not man's word that forms the perimeters uh, for acceptable or unacceptable right or wrong, appropriate, inappropriate, moral, immoral. It's God's word that does that. It's not man's word, it's God's word. You see, we have to be real clear, don't we? Where is it that our standards of right and wrong come from? Because we're seeing a society that's becoming more and more tolerable to perversity and what the Bible would classify as sinful activity while simultaneously increasing in hostility toward scriptural standards. You know, calling good evil and evil good and all. Well, so who who defines right and wrong? I mean, is that something man does? 
And if it's something that man does, what's the basis for the decision that he makes? I mean, why do you get to determine what's right or wrong for me? I want to determine what's right and wrong for you. So how do we determine this? How do we figure this out? Who gets to decide? Is it whoever gets the most votes? I mean, does Mike make right? Does mob rule? Seems to today, doesn't it? Mob's going to rule, mob's going to decree, mob's going to decide, and if the court doesn't agree, there's going to be problems. Hmm. So, how do we do this? It's a slippery slope, isn't it? There needs to be an authority that's higher than me if there's to be any say over me. Would we agree? And that's where the word of God comes in. It's not man's word that sets the standard. It's God's word. Mine is to choose obedience or disobedience and the ramifications which follow whichever choice that I make. Now, of course, in this case, even culturally, what this man was doing was taboo. It was inappropriate. But if that's not enough, the scriptures are clear. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It's your father's nakedness. She is his, you see. And again, a man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. I'll give you one more. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed. Now, what's it called when we decide to go in a direction that's contrary to the word of God? Yeah, that's called sin. Now, here's some. Here's, I'll give you a chance to get some bonus credit here. What's it called if we go against the word of God? We know what God's word says, but we go against it anyway. What's that called? That's, that's transgression, okay? I can sin un, unknowing. I can miss the mark, right? But if I know what's right and I choose to do what's wrong, now I've transgressed. In other words, uh, uh, you know, you don't want me on your property, uh, but there's no posting. I don't know. I crossed the fence. Uh, I've sinned. I've missed the mark. I've done something that was inappropriate, but I didn't know. But if you have a sign post that says no trespassing, and I just go, and I step across, now I've trespassed. I've transgressed, right? Now, this was the situation with this man in the Corinthian congregation. Uh, now, we might throw... On top of it, that since this woman is an unbeliever, not only is the man sinning egregiously, he's also kind of trying to yoke up unequally, right? So we've got this whole dynamic of things that's happening. But check it out. Here's the thing that's kind of, kind of like escalates the, like the wow factor in certain regards. Paul's primary problem doesn't really revolve around the man specifically. Now, don't get me wrong. What he's doing is terrible. He'll address the situation pointedly. But Paul's problem primarily is how it was handled, being handled in the body. Okay? Look at, look at verse 2. He says, so, so this man has his father's wife. Look at verse 2. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Hmm. So up to this point, Paul has dealt mainly, through, through our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has dealt mainly with what we might call the misaligned mindset, right, of the Corinthian Christians. Wrong ideas about God's power, 
God's um, work, God's servants, and all of this. Now he moves on into what we might call their misaligned morals, okay? But let's not miss the connection because morality is connected to mindset. What we believe will determine how we behave. And rather than you know, making light of this man's behavior or somehow minimizing the situation, he says, you should have mourned over his sin. Don't minimize the sin. But you should be mourning over this sin. Discipline should be in order, but indifference was at work instead. And actually, truth be told, it's beyond indifference. He says that they're proud of it. They're puffed up over it. You know, today... The Corinthians would be seen as a liberal, progressive congregation, politically correct, open-minded, understanding, you know, who are we to judge love and all? And they were, well, the buzzword is tolerant, right? It's unbelievable the things that people will accept in the name of love or tolerance. Yet the Bible is clear, but fornication... And all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting. And again he says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Listen to me, does love allow cancer to continue to invade the body because to deal with it and get rid of it will be painful or uncomfortable? No, the opposite is true. And so too, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And love is willing to confront sin for the sake of the eternal well-being of the one being ensnared. Paul says you're glorying when you ought to be grieving. He says this man ought to have been taken away from you. Uh, translation, you're not even considering the impact that this sin is having on everyone else. You should be zealous to preserve and protect the purity of the body. You see, somewhere in their minds, they thought that this reflected well on them. You know, they were so gracious. They were so understanding. Uh, they were so loving. But they were allowing this sin to influence and infect in fact, to poison the body. Look at verse 3. He says, For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Wow, right? I mean, Paul's not pulling any punches here. By the way, uh, let me just point out, you know, we spent uh, some time a couple of weeks ago, last week in fact, which was just a few verses ago, uh, speaking about this attitude, you know, that we can adopt out, you know, well, God is my judge. Only God can judge me and this and that. Because Paul was saying in that text last week that their estimation of him, their evaluation of him, didn't really make much difference to him regarding the course of his ministry, right? He said, it is God who will judge me with that. 
And I encourage you with the fact that we got to be careful not to take one part apart from the whole and build some kind of mentality or, or doctrine on it, you see. Paul was saying that we don't have appropriate insight to judge the motives of a man's heart. You know, I mean, who it is that's being used mightily of God and who's being used minimally of God. We talked about Jeremiah and his ministry and how it seemed to be a dismal failure as far as, you know, standards and statistics would be considered, you see. And then you look at Jonah and, and the radical revival that happened around him and who was really the one whose heart was right with God. And, and you know, so, so we can't always judge by what we see outwardly. Man looks to the outward appearance, but God looks to the heart. You know, we're praising one ministry. We're putting down another ministry. And Paul says this isn't right. But nowhere does the Bible forbid recognizing sin as sin, okay? Or seeing a sinful situation for what it is. Here he says, look, I, guys, I don't even need to be there and I already know the appropriate course of action. I've already, well, our word is, what's the word? I've judged. He says, I've already judged the man who's done this deed. So when there's something going on that's wrong, then there's something going on that's wrong. Okay? And we don't have to pretend it's not wrong for the sake of offending the one who's choosing to rebel against the ways and the word of God. If something's wrong, it's wrong. Okay? And let me just add that when Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged there in Matthew chapter 7, he wasn't saying, and guys, again, this is where context becomes so critical when we study God's word. He wasn't saying, don't recognize sin for what it is, okay? He was saying not to judge in a hypocritical fashion. That is, don't accuse in someone else something that you will excuse within yourself. Does that make sense? Uh, if you're going to hold someone else to a certain standard, then that same standard is going to be held over you. I don't think Paul had any problem uh, having the standard of sleeping with a man's, you know, father, a father's wife being held against him, right? And so motives, ministries, I can't always know. But conduct is what it is, isn't it? And it's appropriate to confront and deal with inappropriate conduct, okay? Now, private sin, meaning something that not everyone's aware of, okay, can oftentimes be dealt with in a private manner, meaning it doesn't need to be announced and, you know, everything. But public sin is dealt with publicly, okay? If everyone knows the sin, then everyone needs to know that it was handled scripturally, this sin in particular was a well-known fact by everybody in the church and many people outside of the church. And by the way, I might just add that this is important information not only within the walls of a church, but oftentimes within, the, within a home as well. In other words, parents, you know, your child's growing up, they're becoming teens or whatever the case may be, and they're getting into this and doing that, and you don't serve your children well by allowing them to live in sin uh, you know, apart from any repercussions in the name of love, okay? There comes a time 
when a person needs to be free to reap the ramifications of their own ways. You know, maybe, you, maybe it's a spouse, maybe you live with an addict or something, you know, and, and, and if we're not careful, we become what we call enablers, don't we? You know, we, we, you know, people know that if they start to crash, you'll be there, you'll put the pillow under them, you'll soften the blow till they can get back up on their feet. That's not right. Now, Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay, a few things that are important here. Number one, what we do when it comes to church discipline, we do in the name, okay, not meaning in the name of the Lord, you know, it's not like that. When you do something in the name, you mean it means in his character, in his likeness, with his heart, and all of this. So what we do, we do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not out of anger, not being vindictive, not being malicious, but out of love for them, with a view toward the eternal as it pertains to them. Number two, so we do what we do in the name of the Lord Jesus, we do what we do with the power of Jesus, okay? In other words, I have no power in and of myself to determine your discipline, spiritually speaking, right? Spiritual discipline is rooted in the power of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, finally, we note that the ultimate aim of spiritual discipline is not for the purpose of condemnation, but as it pertains to the person's restoration and salvation, that his spirit may be saved. He's talking about what we would call today tough love, right? Question, what does it mean to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? I don't want you to think, listen, I don't want you to think too mystically about this, you know, as though there's some kind of uh, weird ceremony or something radical, ritualistically. No, it's nothing like that. He's simply saying, look, put this person out of the church, okay? Uh, here's the thing. The church is what we might refer to as the Lord's domain, and the world is what we would refer to as the devil's domain. Are you following me? Jesus, in John chapter 12, referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Uh, Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, called him the God of this world, or the God of this age. And John, in 1 John chapter 5, said that the whole world lies under the sway, the influence of the wicked one. Guys, there are certain benefits afforded to believers by being under the covering of the church. It's simply something that God has ordained, a spiritual protection of sorts, not to mention a social comfort. It's good to come together and, and encourage one another. But when Paul speaks of delivering him over to Satan, he's not speaking of an evil, you know, an infliction of evil, but rather just a simple removal of the blessing, the spiritual blessing and benefit that comes from being a part of the body of Christ. So to what end? What's the purpose of doing this? He said it's for the destruction of his flesh, 
Now, not the destruction of his body, okay, necessarily. We've talked about this. We've spoken of the flesh. It's, it's this, uh, this inward desire that's woven into the fabric of our being that wants to express itself in uh, self-seeking or sinful kind of ways. And this man was given over to the sins of the flesh, And Paul says, remove the false sense of security. Give him over to the consequences that come. And the hope is that by wallowing in the results of his sin, those impulses of the flesh will be wiped out. You know, it's interesting today, it seems like people, you know, leave churches and have little to no thought about it. Just kind of go. And, uh, you know, that probably says a couple of things. Number one, I think it, it maybe speaks to the weakened state of the church. You know, that someone could leave the church and not note the difference in their lives uh, of not being a part of, of the church. But then secondly, I think it says something of the spiritual condition of the individual. You know, if they can willingly neglect the assembling together of the saints and actually prefer isolation. Now, of course, there's one more thing that can make this kind of disciplinary procedure difficult today, and that is that someone can be removed from a particular assembly and just go down the road and uh, go to another church that's completely unaware and just speak of how horribly that church, that previous church, was treating them, you know. But regardless of those things, you guys, we follow scriptural protocols because we want to see people repent. Again, restoration is in view, not condemnation. I like what Warren Wearsby said about this. He said, uh, church discipline uh, is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Uh, Rather, it's a group of brokenhearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. And that's true. Now, does it always work? No. People don't always repent. But that's the heart behind it. Having said that, it's not just the person individually you're looking out for. You're also looking out for the well-being of the body corporately, aren't you? Look at here, verse 6. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says, guys, this isn't good. You know, they were proud of their tolerance. They were pleased to ignore this man's sin and pretend that they were being gracious and loving. But again, I ask, do you show love to a body by being tolerant of a cancer? Guys, it's true, the sin of the individual was horrible. But the sin of the church and the leaders therein was even worse. They were catering to the man. They were being inconsiderate of the body. Paul says, do you not know that just a little leaven... Will leaven the whole lump. Now, we all know what leaven is, yes? It's not yeast per se, okay? We're talking about, think of like a sourdough bread starter, right? A little, little chunk of the previous dough that's used to, to start as a starter in a new lump, you know. And the leavening process, if you think about it, it's not seen really initially, but eventually its influence is seen quite easily, It begins to influence. The whole batch of dough begins to rise. It's being infected. It's being influenced as the leaven permeates the entire batch there. And so leaven in Scripture becomes a type or a picture. Remember, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. It becomes a symbol of sin. And, you know, it's just a little pinch of that old dough, of that old life. But when it's left unchecked, It affects the whole 
uh, lump, the whole batch, that little bit spreads to corrupt everything it comes in contact with. And even so, one individual sin was impacting the whole church. Guys, that's what sin does. Now again, we all fall short, right? Uh, we're not talking about an occasional stumble. Uh, we're not talking about something where, you know, we're kind of struggling with this sin, but we're seeking to gain victory. Our heart is to honor the Lord in our lives and all. That's not what we're talking about. The reference is to that perspective of, look, I know it's wrong. I know it's sin. I've been made aware. I just don't care. Right? I mean, I, I want to continue in it. I, I like doing this. I'm not going to change. That mentality, left unchecked, will eventually negatively affect everyone else. You know, now time forbids this, but if you want to do a little more research on this, you might write it down. You can read it later. It's Joshua chapter 7. Just a little sin buried beneath the tent there, and it affected everybody, right? Look it up later on your own. Uh, Verse 7, he says, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. Since you truly are unleavened, for Christ, uh, in, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, purge out the old leaven. Hey, you know, that... that old lifestyle, those old sins, those things. You know, it's crazy how many people try to do some of the same things they did in the world, but just to a lesser degree. You know, they're identifying with the old life. And we're going to see this as we continue to go through 1 Corinthians, where the calling upon the life of the believer is to come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch that which is unclean and all. But that life of sin and feeding the flesh, he says, purge that out from among your assembly. Now, of course, Paul isn't saying that you can't be around sinners. We're going to see that too. I mean, hey, to the contrary. But he's talking here about someone who's made a profession of Christ but isn't living Christ-like. Are you following me? but rather they're living like they don't know Jesus at all. They're just out and about doing the same things that people do, you know, who don't know the Lord. Now, he brings up Passover. Before Passover, all the leaven of the house was to be removed. There was not to be, you know, any leaven eaten for a week. Uh, But his point is that even as the Jews were to remove the leaven from their midst, even so the church should be removing these kinds of unrepentant sinners from their midst. He says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. We're a new lump, you see. It's new life. Our sins have been washed away. Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. His blood was shed that God's wrath might pass over us, you see. And we're a new creation. And so we're to purge the sins of the old life. We're to get rid of malice and wickedness and replace them with sincerity and truth. Or we might say truth and transparency. Not trying to cover things up. Not being worried if someone else might see or whatever the case may be. There's a holiness. There's to be a purity about the church. Listen, we're to live. Can I just say this? We're to live unleavened 
because we are unleavened. Does that make sense? The basic message of the New Testament for Christian living is be what you are. Be whom God has made you to be. Now, in verse nine, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Guys, uh, so what we're seeing here is that there was another letter that Paul had written to them previously. I don't want you to weird out about the fact that Paul wrote letters that we don't have, okay? Not everything the man wrote was meant for the entire church throughout all time and eternity, okay? Uh, It was for them, it wasn't for us. If it was for us, God would have preserved it. Can we agree with that? That's not, we don't weird out about that. But he says, look, you're missing my point. I told you not to keep company with the sexually immoral, and so you quit hanging around unbelievers, that's not, that, that's not what I was talking about. He said, I wasn't telling you to get this kind of this, this bubble kind of mentality where you just refuse to hang out with anybody who, who doesn't claim to you know, know the Lord. Check it out, verse 10, he says, I certainly did not mean, uh-oh, change two pages, with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters because then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. He says, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside, that is outside the body of Christ? Do you not judge those who are inside? Look at this. This is like a rhetorical question. You should be dealing with this. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. You see, he's clarifying something that he previously had communicated. We want, guys, we want people to see Jesus. We want them to come to know Jesus. They can't do that if you're not around them right? We're in the world. We're just not to be of the world. We're to be separated from the unbeliever, not isolated from the unbeliever. Does that make sense? It's like a boat in water, isn't it? You put a boat in the water, no problem. You put water in the boat, (laughs) big problem. So, you know, being, uh, uh, having, you know, being around uh, the ungodly, no problem. Uh, being, taking in, you know, that ungodliness, a b- big problem, okay? But most believers are more like the Corinthians were in that they isolate themselves from the very ones God wants to reach, but accept the same kind of sins in people who call themselves Christians. This is a problem. Listen, you guys. Let's not be surprised or shocked or chagrined when ungodly people act ungodly, okay? That's, that's what they do. <laughs> if, if you, you know, don't want to be around ungodly people, Paul says you're going to need to leave the planet because that's what we have, right? Sexual immorality, greed, thievery, partying, These kinds of things are going to happen among the unbelieving. 
but they shouldn't be tied to, identified with, or found in the Christian community, the body of Christ. You find someone who claims to be a Christian, but their lives are identified or defined by these kinds of things, he says, have nothing to do with them. Don't even eat with them, he says. I get, uh, by the way, we're getting ready to close, so praise team, if you guys want to come up here, it's fine. But he says, he says, what do I have to do with judging those outside, outside the body of Christ? Mark, you didn't get the memo, did you? I said, you guys, you've got to sit a little closer. You can't be walking from all the way back there. <laughs> we'll wait on you. <laughs> but guys, too often, too often that's what we do, isn't it? We're not to be judging, he says, those who are outside the body. But I think that that's what we do. So many times we judge those who are outside, but we neglect holiness and purity on the inside of, of the body. Listen, God will deal with the ungodly. We're to hold accountable our own brothers and sisters in the Lord, you know. But you find Christians, and I'm not saying that it should never happen. I mean, you know, whatever the Lord leads you to, but you find Christians are out there marching about this, they're petitioning about that, they're picketing on the other thing, they're crusading about this and that, pointing out the world's sin, and then turning a blind eye to our own, right? Guys, we're to deal with the Christian community and God will take care of the world's iniquity, right? You want to see the world changed, then you want to see him come to Jesus Christ. Righteousness happens from the inside out. I mean, could it be that one reason the church today has so little influence in the world is because the world has so much influence in the church? Think about that. And so let's pray and ask the Lord to purify our hearts and purify this place. Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of your word. God, you search us and know us. And, and help us, God, to lead lives of holiness, purity, sincerity, truth and transparency. God, renew our hearts. God, we just, we turn from our sin. We want to be that, that new lump, that unleavened lump that you've called us to be leading lives that glorify your name. And guys, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and we're just kind of maybe thinking through, I don't know, some of the things that we've heard today, I, I want you to know that, again, the purpose of a message like this, as we just, and guys, you know, we don't pick and choose what parts of, you know, each week, it's not something, we're just going through the Bible. This is where we find ourselves. And so the purpose of a message like this isn't condemnation. It's exhortation leading unto restoration, okay? Let's not play games with God. Let's get our heart right with him today.